0: on today's episode.
1: In terms of now being a leader in an industry that remains dominated by men, I think it does give you a real advantage in terms of just bringing a different perspective to the table. We all talk about cognitive diversity and how important that is. I'd say my deep love for working with people and my curiosity in people and what makes them tick has led me to just be very curious about others and to ask them questions about themselves. And that has enabled me to, I think, build trust
0: Welcome to the Active Share a podcast that explores less obvious investing insights in a world that's always changing. I'm your host, Hugo Scott Gall. Today I am delighted to have with me Ethan Devitt. Ethan currently serves as the first female chief investment officer. At Moneta, a $27 billion assets under management firm. She was previously head of investment at the international business of Federated Hermes Limited. She has worked with institutional investors for over 20 years as a consultant, as an advisor, and has developed global experience in the US, Europe, and Asia. In 2020, she created the 50 Faces podcast, a podcast focused on showcasing the richness and diversity of the world of investment by telling stories of a diverse group of people. Ethan, thanks very much for joining me.
1: delighted to be here, thank you.
0: So let's get fracking, let's talk, we're gonna talk about lots of different things, but let's start off with your sort of career journey. And I think it's always a good question, asking anyone investment, the answers are not always the same. Where did your interest in investing come from? What got you hooked?
1: Well, it certainly wasn't in my case, sitting around the dinner table at home and discussing the latest stock picks of the Financial Times. I actually started my career as a lawyer, And I came from a family that had many doctors in it. So lots of different kinds of doctors, but certainly medicine was a running theme through my household. So became a lawyer, loved studying law. I went into corporate law right after law school at Trinity College Dublin, which was really my first foray into the world of finance and a little bit of investment because we dealt with private equity funds at that time. I spent two years in New York and then went on to Hong Kong. And in Hong Kong, I was really almost integrated with the clients because we did work on site a lot. It was during the Asian crisis, so we saw their fortunes rise and fall, and that gave me a real visceral sense of how IPOs matter, how you're raising a bond issue, how that matters to a, a company, and it really that was really where I first became interested, really initially, in just demystifying the world of numbers, the world of finance, and it, particularly investment banking. But my first foray into investment management came through Cambridge Associates, and that wasn't until two thousand and two.
0: So you start, you became a, a consultant looking at the investment management industry. Did you just think, well, I kind of quite like the idea of investing and I think I could do it better? Well, I
1: certainly did enjoy meeting the managers. I found it one of the most stimulating aspects of my professional career was meeting with these thought leaders in the space. I did also enjoy the task of relating some of that to clients because I worked with a lot of investment committees, a lot of large institutional investors. My investment, I will say, has always been at the manager selection stage. I've never actually been at the coalface trading stocks or trading bonds. I'm um, not sure what I w- would be any good at it. I've never really tried it. But I will say that I do. And this maybe comes from my legal skills have a reasonable skill in assessing people. And my judgment I found I've honed over time. I enjoy people. I enjoy interacting with them. I enjoy seeing what makes them tick. It fascinates me. So I think that has enabled me to select managers with whom I would entrust my clients' money over time. My curiosity also really extends to markets. They are never dull. They're always changing, always dynamic. I'm really fascinated by what drives markets. And I don't like to predict markets, but I do at least like to decipher them. So that's an aspect of investing that I really love.
0: You said, I think I can read people pretty well, and that's clearly very important when you're entrusting them with billions of dollars. But do you think the fact you've moved around physically and you've moved around by type of job as well, that has given you a deeper, more diverse hinterland to go to when you think about all the different types of people you've met?
1: There's no question of that. I really do think that travel and working abroad and working in different cultural settings, and I've worked across Asia, including Japan, as well as Europe and the U.S., that definitely opens your mind to many different ways of doing things. It enables you to develop an empathy and really connect with those people on their level in terms of the way they like to communicate, the information they like to take in and the level of due diligence they like to do. So I have no question that. And I would encourage anyone to always take that opportunity to have a stint in a foreign office. Trust yourself into it. One of the most significant learnings I took came very early on in my career. I started my career as a lawyer in a large New York law firm. And a lot of what we did in corporate law was looking at precedent. If we were writing a contract, we'd look at what the old contract looked like and we'd make a few modifications and that was our new contract. So there was sort of a a lot of cut and pasting going on. When we went to Asia, there was no precedent for many of the situations we found ourselves in. And initially, that was daunting because it seemed like, well, now what? You know, I don't have that book to pull off the shelf. And I remember a partner saying to me, well, now you have to actually use your skills. You want the contract to say this? Well, write it to say this. And just being forced to adapt and improvise in that way was really key. I think a skill that I've taken with me ever since.
0: How important to you has been... Being a mentee and being a mentor, did you have people along the way who really helped you? I think most people's answer is yes. But when that happened, did you seek it or did it come to you?
1: In some cases, I think at almost in every case, it came to me as opposed to me seeking it. I'm not sure I even had the self-awareness to know that I needed to seek out mentors at that stage. It, maybe it was the kind of confidence of youth, but I didn't embrace feedback the way I should have. I didn't welcome it. I always took it personally. I didn't see it in the spirit in which it was intended. I was given mentors just as a natural structure of a large law firm. I was given both a junior and a senior mentor, and they took their role very seriously and really took me under their wing that was tremendous. And I've always found that when I see someone that inspires me, I really gravitate towards them and start to learn from them, watch what they do and and try to emulate that. So I wouldn't say I've ever expressly asked those people to be mentors, but I've definitely learned tremendous amount from the, the brilliance of others.
0: Yes. Yes. Well, ditto, ditto. And it's if you come with a structured, good question asking for help, nearly everyone will give it to you. If you just say, I want some help, and it's quite vague and non-specific, then I think you kind of get a lot less back, if nothing at all. So one question I have to ask you, and this is a question that I couldn't answer, which is, can you talk through what it's like being a female leader in a male-dominated industry? You know, I'm always very aware that you don't really understand what it's like to be in someone else's shoes until you actually are, and that's not a question that I know that I can answer. So I'm interested in your perspective on that, and of course, how it's changed over time.
1: Well, I think I mentioned earlier, at the very beginning of my career, where it was actually expected that we looked to a precedent to actually copy that contract. But I think you have to take that analogy further. That's what we do in our lives, too. We look for examples of people who have navigated this path before. That's why role models are so important. We look at how somebody navigated this tricky situation, or what they said, or how they coped with returning from work after maternity leave. The sad fact is, because there are so few women in senior positions, there are extremely few role models for whom to look to for that expertise. So I didn't have many role models. I say that was challenging. It meant by, by default that many of the role models had to be men. So I tried to learn from them and the wide diversity of men that I worked with. In terms of now being a leader in an industry that remains dominated by men, I think it does give you a real advantage in terms of just bringing a different perspective to the table. We all talk about cognitive diversity and how important that is. I'd say my deep love for working with people and my curiosity in people and what makes them tick has led me to just be very curious about others and to ask them questions about themselves. And that has enabled me to, I think, build trust. But I wouldn't say it's been a factor in my career progression as such. I don't feel it's hindered me, but it's always been an aspect. It's just something that just sits there, just like I have red hair and I'm also often the only woman in a room or often the only woman on a panel. And that's just something I'm used to at the moment.
0: So I'm really interested in your answer on this. Why is it that there are not enough women in our industry and it's not really changing?
1: It's not changing fast enough. There are certainly many great groups like there, like Girls Are Investors, Girls Who Invest, trying to really improve the pipeline. I think the missing piece is the nurturing. And I did this, I was on a panel recently where we talked a little bit about sport. And my only sport I've ever been any good at is long distance running, but is how the importance of those kind of cheerleaders along the way of your race, the point where you're most likely to start flagging or most likely to start, you know, finding that, you know, you really need that energy drink or just that boost of morale. I think that's where we fall short in the industry. We're very good at the beginning of the race, at the starting corrals. We get everyone all excited about the vision and how much of a contribution they're going to make. But it's at the points where they're starting to feel weak or the energy is ebbing. I don't think we're rallying in the same way. Maybe it's because we're all too busy, but we're not doing enough to nurture women along their career path. And then there are practical reasons too. There's the time of life when maybe a lot of progression might be being made in, say, a portfolio manager track record where there might be leaves taken, but there's no reason that that should really act as an impediment. Unfortunately, it has acted, and then there are simply fewer women in the role. And there's been attrition through COVID, through you know, the great resignation. This attrition is felt everywhere across the industry. And unfortunately, when it happens with a senior woman, we unfortunately don't have a great bank with whom to replace them. So I think that those factors are all part of it.
0: If I can. Just pivot a bit now to, you said earlier, you're very interested in people and you think you've got a pretty good sort of mental model for assessing people. Obviously a big part of your role now is assessing asset managers, investors, portfolio managers. So could you sort of share some traits of good investors and also some traits of less good investors where you've had disappointments? And I know that's a broad, broad question, but I'd love to hear what you see as the recurring patterns around excellence and I guess those that have fallen short.
1: Absolutely. Well, certainly I've always seen it as a key kind of part of the joys of my job, the ability to meet with managers. And even when I've been a single person investment office as I was when I was CIO of the Chicago Police Pension. I used to always have an open door to manager meetings because in my single person office, I was a little lonely. And I really relished the opportunity to have these you know, relatively high level professional discussions. So I've always loved to meet with managers. And I think I've met enough. I've seen the good, the bad and the ugly. I've also I had my own fund for a while. I had my own firm. Having done that, I think you become pretty good at knowing when you're seeing smoke and mirrors and knowing when something is not quite what it looks to be. What I would always try to do is kind of look through those smoke and mirrors and really try to get to the essence of what really is So transparency, honesty. Those are key traits that we'd have to see. Humility, too. I like to ask managers how they fared through challenging times about their worst investment idea or their worst stock that year. Their winners, their losers, what they've learned from them. And one can gain a huge amount just hearing how a manager even reacts to that question, because whether they're defensive or whether they're open, and you get a good sense, too, as to you know how aligned their interests are, like their skin in the game. That is a, obviously a key trait. And just being very open and upfront about making mistakes. The fact is, our industry has always been taboo to mention investment mistakes, which, you know, by definition of any batting average we look at in terms of the outer underperformance of active managers, we can see that mistakes are all over the map and there's quite a prolific number of mistakes for every investment manager, but yet we don't talk about them. And I think it's only when we have the safety to talk about mistakes and what we learn from them that we actually can see where the true talent lies. So I'd say that's a characteristic of uh, the good managers I like to see. And also just from a practical standpoint, like to see not too much focus on asset gathering. I like them to treat their investors like partners and not simplify things to the point of thinking that the investor doesn't grasp the concept. I've always been somewhat allergic to having overly simplified, dumbed down presentations. I do a lot of work with public funds. I sit on some investment committees, and the reason I'm so passionate about that is I think that this is a large body of assets, and often it's been steered by investment committees that are not comprised of financial professionals. They're public servants or elected representatives and extremely committed and extremely intelligent, but they're not perhaps skilled in financial services. And when I see a product being sold to them, almost in, in the form of a, a snake oil type salesman, I've quite defensive. And it really does force me to really want to, to rally as a protector almost of that institutional investor. So I say that's a bad sign to take your investor for granted and not see it as a partnership.
0: That's very interesting. As you say, it's a highly skilled thing to be able to do. And it's a really Mentally tough thing to do to stick with managers who you believe in when they're going through tough times, because no one, no it doesn't matter who they are, has a great quarter every quarter. It's just not possible. But one of the things you know if you think about an investment manager, what is their competitive advantage? It's skill in making decisions, and it is intellectual capital. There are no physical assets. So how do you assess culture? Because culture has to be very important. even if it's a small team, but if it's a bigger team, how do you go about assessing culture? Because I imagine most investment managers, as with most sort of intangible, intellectual property-driven decision-making businesses, so this could be a whole range of professional services firm, will tell you they've got a great culture. Now, how do you sort of assess that?
1: First of all, it's essential to visit the manager on site. That old adage about kicking the tires as it really does ring true. Going on site, it's the body language, it's the atmosphere in the office, the sense of industry. It's in a meeting if the senior person's there in place, whether the junior people can have a chance to talk, little things like that. I also read a lot into the energy and the excitement that I see, particularly among junior staff, when, to be working in the environment they're working in. I think that's where we get the true read on culture. So what it is critically important, and unfortunately with COVID, we haven't been as able to do that as we would have been in the past.
0: Yeah, and in different ways, I think COVID has been a challenge for cultures, particularly cultures that relied a lot on close physical contact. I don't mean really close physical contact, but I mean discussing things, brainstorming in rooms together. That I think has been a challenge. So I think it'd be very interesting once everyone's back on the road, checking those cultures to see if they've remained as strong, whether they've been, whether they're strengthened. Do you think if we wound forward t- ten years, fifteen years, you'll be looking for very different things in managers than you are today?
1: I don't think so. I think this is really a people business. I mean, obviously, in probably in 10 years, we'd expect technology to be forming and even we would certainly expect certain technologies to be in place with many of these managers and not to simply be doing everything with, with the old methods. But I would think that in terms of who you're going to really entrust your capital with, and especially as we get into private markets, that's going to be where the lockups are longer and the the ability to deliver value is really dependent on the skill and the network and the experience. I do think that we'll be looking at many of the same things.
0: Let me ask you a similar question, but really around the product side, as in, do you think the different range of things you can invest in, whether that might be public markets versus private, whether that might be off the peg, long only equity portfolios versus bespoke. Do you think that the products required for the next 10, 15, 20 years are going to look very different, that we're going to get disruption to the product suite of the investment management industry?
1: Definitely. That's a great question. And you know, certainly the number of products continues to proliferate. And we certainly are navigating through an increasingly busy scene when it comes to choosing for our clients. We're going to see evolution on many fronts. We're going to see evolution in terms of structure, whether it comes through customized indices, through more products being, supposed suppose, democratized and made available to the smaller investor. And equally, there will be technology platforms that make that possible, that allows there to be this efficient scale to get access to those big names. So now where I'm working and where we work with for some very small clients, as well as large clients, We've seen the need for that, and we've seen the speed with which that many of these technology platforms have started up in order to cater for that need. So that's definitely going to be a big change. In terms of subject matter, too, we're already seeing massive innovation, whether it be around digital assets or, say, impact-focused funds or the renewable energy funds or any number of areas where we're seeing new product launches, as well as perhaps inflation-resilient funds or funds that are tied to the commodity complex. We continue to see a large amount of innovation in the product space. I still think we'll be looking at the same core exposures, especially certainly for going forward 10 years. We may be more selective when it comes to active management. Maybe there will be less, maybe patients will have run out with some of the active managers who aren't delivering alpha and aren't returning their fees at least. So perhaps we'll see more passive. But again, there'll be customized passive ex- solutions then as well, because increasingly investors want to make their mark on their strategy. And if it's not coming from them, it's coming from their stakeholders, the need to get a mission expressed in an investment strategy.
0: Do you think customization is an area where active managers, as in humans, can prove themselves and actually carve out a niche that is both defendable, maybe raises switching costs, maybe enjoys some pricing power? Or is customization eventually just going to be done more and more by machines? I mean, is there much when you're thinking about five-year, 10-year view allocating to humans versus machines, what is it you think humans can still do well?
1: I can say that the ESG revolution in terms of the product factory that we've seen spring up has definitely been a lifeline for active managers. There's no question there is still a skepticism around how passive strategies can achieve that and can certainly, as we see that even getting more extreme the need to whether be divest from a certain region or a certain sector, as we up the ante on that, that is going to definitely give a lifeline. Unfortunately, it may not always be a just lifeline in that there may be some strategies that perhaps shouldn't have continued or managers that shouldn't by right have a reason to continue to exist. They will continue to exist. In terms of so customization that gets around products that cannot be done passively will certainly be a lifeline. As far as customization, such as index customization, that then I think is going to probably be a great boon for those very large players who can construct those indices. And some of those firms didn't even exist 10 years ago. You know, they've really just sprung up in response to that. They've moved swiftly and arguably that they're looking at the entire ETF complex as, as their potential client base.
0: I think one of the arguments for humans versus machines, that machines oftentimes I mean they're very nimble, but they they can only process current and historic information. Humans can see patterns and should therefore be very good. Not be very good, but should be relatively good when things change and things change in a unusual way or a meaningful way. So you're getting a real dislocation. So right now, it certainly feels we may well be in a different investment regime than we were in the last, let's say, decade. I mean, you can certainly maybe even say that the the investment regime we were in, maybe right up to the pandemic, or maybe right up to the invasion of Ukraine, perhaps started actually with Volcker in, in the early 80s. So you can debate where the investment regime started. But do you think that, I suppose, number one, when you get step change, big shifts in investment regimes, that should be something that humans can thrive in. Or secondarily, perhaps the bigger question really is, do you think we're moving into a different investment regime?
1: It's a great question. And I suppose the classic phrase that the four most dangerous words are, it's different this time, are something that I've been thinking about a great deal since the beginning of the year, because there is a temptation to think it's different this time when we're in the middle of it. But we have to remember it's only a matter of weeks since that invasion. And now there's a sense of almost normalizing the environment, normalizing because we're getting used to the backdrop, the noise at the the backdrop. And we've certainly seen markets start to normalize. So at this point, I'm probably on the fence as to whether we're in a new regime. I'm watching carefully. But then the other question is, well, even if we were in a new regime, would we necessarily change what we should do as a response to that? Even looking back through the historic regimes, a solid portfolio with a steady state allocation to equities going back decades would probably have still made a lot of money. Not too much tactical short term shifting that goes against one of my core investment beliefs, which is around long term, not reactive investing, but having a strong strategic orientation and pretty much sticking to that. But I do blend that with uh, because I love markets and love watching them. I do blend that with a kind of a daily observation of the market because I need to know what's going on so I can interpret it. And I can use it as my backdrop with which to interrogate and quiz managers in terms of how they're reacting. But generally, the best advice of all is to do nothing. And that's actually something that some of the models are and algorithms are quite good at, is they are good at actually sticking to their rebalancing discipline and to their regime. So I'd say I'm not sure it'll benefit one or the other anymore. I think possibly the human tendency to, towards action bias and towards knee-jerk reactions and towards sentiment is probably going to actually be a mistake.
0: I think you're right. I think you're right. If, If we had Warren Buffett with us, he would say, look, well, maybe he wouldn't. I'm putting words in his mouth and speculating, but he may well say, look, the two big things I needed to believe in were the strength of the U.S. economy, its innovative, resilient nature, and second was property rights, that I wasn't going to get my assets taken off me and that the U.S. economy was going to keep producing growth, enhancing productivity, all of those things. And I think I read pretty much everything he writes and says Ditto charlie munger i think those two things were constants and that's why he says look you know i was lucky to be born in the us if i had been born in other places in the world i wouldn't have had this opportunity so i think that was his north star in terms of setting the investment regime a lot of other things all the things that have happened in his investing lifetime you could drive yourself mad trying to work out what they mean and right now i think it's pretty easy to produce a laundry list of is it cold war ii how persistent can inflation be how long before rates have to rise? What do rates mean for equities, stagflation? Do we have enough data sets to really understand stagflation? Are we talking about deglobalization, a shrinking of there are a lot of companies who, who certainly in their pitch book will tell you we've got a huge addressable market, and now maybe that addressable market is shrinking because we're going to deglobalize. You know, all of those things are very difficult for one human brain to process, certainly my human brain to process. But I just wonder how you think about that. I think you've sort of answered it, but on any given day, you can create a list as long as your arm of things to try and think about and fit together to get a coherent view. I think where you're going with this is that's probably the wrong thing to that. Active management doesn't necessarily mean you have to be active every day. You need to understand. I think some bigger things. Demography would fit into that. That actually, Absolutely. You know, and yeah. And so sometimes don't give in to yourself and just remember these bigger trends. And is that roughly how you think about it and therefore kind of how you allocate the billions of dollars you have at your disposal?
1: Absolutely. I always like to be a critical thinker and to have an open mind and to ask myself to test the questions like you're asking right now and say, well, is it different this time? Has something changed? And I say the only aspect of today's regime that I think is different is the ESG driven, stakeholder driven concept of investability. Which seems to have come to the fore around russia and that is to me just really a crescendo that we've been seeing building up over the increased awareness of esg issues we've had increased vocal overtures by stakeholders and by companies in response a lot of this came about in, in the summer of 2020 with the murder of george floyd we saw companies responding and now there is just this groundswell of response to and uh, to perceived, to governance and social issues, in particular really coming to a, the fore with Russia. So i say that's the one aspect which I wonder whether that's something we've seen before. And we've certainly seen high inflation. We've seen rising interest rates. We've seen emerging market underperformance. All of these areas, and we've seen the oil price being quite volatile. There are, I wouldn't say there are playbooks for this and that every crisis is different. And I don't like to look to a previous crisis to understand this one because, you know, this is so different from the um, GFC in terms of just financial institution stability. But I do wonder how far, if we were to open that door of what we consider investable based on moral judgment, how much we would have to continue, leave that door, how much we, we would let in or let out were that door to be opened. And that's something I'm watching very carefully to see if it's flash in the pan or the beginning of a much bigger trend.
0: That's a great point. I wanted to ask you about that, actually. Just ESG in some ways is being tested now because you know alternative energy sources some countries going to burn more coal, et cetera. So I wonder whether this test of something that's really gathered a lot of pace, and I think, as you said, has proliferated into a lot of products, some of them perhaps not doing exactly what they purport and claim to be doing. But I wonder whether ESG comes through this a little changed but stronger for it.
1: Definitely. I mean, there's so many articles written about whether the war in Ukraine is going to ultimately be the boon for renewable energy and ESG overall. I think it may be the stronger for it. It'll certainly, be the stronger in terms of us understanding what it means to have an ESG overlay, because now we're seeing that it you know could mean ultimately, if we do decide that a country becomes uninvestable, not because it's a liquid, but because we can't tolerate a regime. What does that mean for many of the emerging market regimes that we already invest in? And I think it's going to draw increased focus on the trade-offs that are implicit in ESG and whether they make sense in every case and whether just as some large oil majors have suggested that, you know, the buying some oil at a discount was essential in order for them to provide essential supplies and not have you know, blackouts across some of their supplies in Europe, whether there is sometimes a necessary evil in order to ensure stability and to ensure that the economies continue to run. So it will be tested. I think we're moving beyond the rhetoric as it's very easy to have theory around ESG. And when Mm -hmm. it's put into practice, then that's when it truly gets tested. So I think it will be stronger for it. I don't think it necessarily means that certain whole sectors will be untouchable.
0: So in a sense, I think you're saying we're going to get some price discovery, that actually something that was quite conceptual and certainly was Very few people would kind of disagree with in terms of, yes, there should be less pollution, et cetera. But now maybe there is some price discovery about what it really means. And I think that's what I meant in my point, which was you get through that price discovery, you understand more clearly and better, okay, maybe there are some sacrifices involved in making the world cleaner, safer, healthier, and that would make it stronger. There would be, I think, maybe a sort of greater sort of social acceptance, perhaps. So I think that, I think it's a very interesting time that actually Russia Ukraine has forced these questions. Let's pivot from that. Finally, I just want to ask you about two things, podcasting and marathons. I'm nervous and intimidated meeting a fellow podcaster who's done many more, hosted many more podcasts than I have. So I, I feel like I'm in the presence of podcasting royalty. But what have you learned from your experience behind the microphone and when we started I observed that your microphone is much more impressive than mine that is something I'm going to take away with me from this there are many things I'm going to take away but certainly microphone envy is one of them so what have you learned from your time behind the mic interviewing people
1: that's a great question thank you very much and I will say there's nobody need to be envious my podcast gear consists of the microphone and that's it. I don't have a lot of gear. It's funny that you mentioned podcasting and marathons because it has been a podcasting marathon, certainly for me, since 2020. And I'd say what I've learned is, first of all, just the power of listening. We don't listen nearly as much as we think we do. And I always do audio only podcasts because I try to just focus on what's being said without the hand gestures and without the facial expressions. Even I wanted to hear it in the voice. And I found that I look at the transcripts of my interviews later and I found that I've spoken maybe 10 percent of the time and the guest has spoken 90 percent of the time, which isn't what a typical conversation would look like. But that's, I think, what's made it so impressive for me in terms of a way to build empathy, because I found that listening to people, for some people, it ended up being almost like a form of therapy. You know, it was done in many cases during a challenging time during the pandemic. And first of all, just hearing about people, I spoke before about the importance of people in the world of investing and other professional worlds and people's relationships and what makes them tick. And I think by asking them a little bit about their hinterland, as, as you've used the expression before, their their backstory, you really get a sense of what makes that person tick. Like, are they driven by money or are they driven by a high standard they've set for themselves? Are they driven to impress others or are they seeking only to live up to that standard for themselves? And I think that's when we get a sense of, of the person and also of their resilience, what they've been through. It's also very powerful to have that story then as a bank. Me to draw on for other experiences and hopefully for listeners to draw on because we don't all have enough experiences in our own careers to really have enough of a bank or library of role models. But if we can gather them together on a podcast series, well, then I think we really have true leverage, and with leverage comes impact.
0: I couldn't agree more. I think one of life's great luxuries is spending time with interesting people, and I certainly have found that one of the huge, huge benefits. And I guess. The gift that keeps on giving from from doing this is, is hearing people's stories and and seeing how they change during an interview, even because, you know, I'm not trained in interviewing, but you kind of know where you're going to start, but you don't know where you're going to end. And so I find it really, really interesting. A book I enjoyed reading is by a Japanese writer called Haruki Murakami, which is what I talk about when I talk about running. When you're running your marathons, I think it's 37 marathons. What do you think about? What do you think about when you think about running?
1: Well, first of all, what I think about is that it's all about just me in this race. And that is actually quite a massive amount of security I get from that, because I'm not going to let down a team. I'm not going to let down anybody else. Nobody else has any expectations around that race other than me. And also knowing that gives you a certain freedom. You can, I did a race recently, which turned out to be all on packed snow. It was a bit of a surprise to me. It was seven degrees Fahrenheit in the morning as I were starting that race. I very quickly realized that this was not going to be a PR And that I was going to just slow down, switch out my fast paced music for some uh, some podcasts and just kind of settle into a long run. And I have the freedom to do that because nobody was expecting anything. I expected myself to finish, but that's about the only expectation I set. So actually being able to be kind of gentle and give yourself some grace like that is something that I think about. It's very much the first of all, there's obviously the fitness aspect. But for me, it's also just the psychological journey. It's about setting goals. So, I do have a goal now. I've gone a little bit beyond 37. I'm at about 41, 42 right now. I actually lose count after a while, but it's to get to 50 by the end of this year. I, having goals is just really important for me to kind of set as milestones and pointers in my life. I find I, I like to organize my life around these little milestones. So, that's what I think about. Sometimes when I'm actually thinking, I'm thinking about, well, where's the next aid station? Or how can I solve this problem in my, well, one of my children's lives? But it tends to be actually the bliss of nothingness.
0: Yes, I completely understand that. Although I haven't run 42 marathons, I haven't even done 42 podcasts. I want to say thank you very much for coming on the show. I know we're a rival show, but as I said, you're podcasting royalty and I'm not. But it's been great talking through. I think we covered a lot of ground, 26 miles.
1: It's been one of the most fun races I've ever run. So thank you so much. (laughs)
0: That was great. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Active Share. To hear additional insights from William Blair Investment Management, visit us at blog.williamblair.com. The Active Share is available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and TuneIn. For questions, comments, or topics you'd like to hear discussed, email us at podcastim at williamblair.com.
2: This content is for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended as investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any security or to adopt any investment strategy. Investment advice and recommendations can be provided only after careful consideration of investors' objectives, guidelines, and restrictions. The views and opinions expressed are those of the speakers as of the date of this recording are subject to change without notice as economic and market conditions dictate and may not reflect the views and opinions of other investment teams within William Blair Investment Management. Factual information has been obtained from sources we believe to be reliable, but its accuracy, completeness, or interpretation cannot be guaranteed. Any discussion of particular topics is not meant to be comprehensive and may be subject to change. This material may include forecasts, estimates, outlooks, projections, and other forward-looking statements. Due to a variety of factors, actual events may differ significantly from those presented. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. Any investment or strategy mentioned herein may not be suitable for every investor. References to specific companies are for illustrative purposes only and should not be construed as investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any security. William Blair Investment Management may or may not own any securities of the companies referenced. It should not be assumed that any investment in the companies referenced was or will be profitable.